Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome. This is Why Food Podcast on Heritage Radio Network, uh, the podcast about adventurous entrepreneurs who left their former careers behind to start some anew in the food world. Um, I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And I'm Ethan Frisch. And today we are here with Scott Norton, co-founder of Sir Kendington's. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you much, so much for having me. It's an honor, Jenny and Ethan. So we always start our show with um, a aha question for our guest, and uh, we were asked to give a little bit more background. So Scott, <laughs> um, you came from finance, um, you traveled the world, and now you are running an amazing condiments business. Can you tell us when you knew that was the place that you wanted to be? Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, it never really feels like an aha moment in the moment. Um, you know, it's something that builds and kind of unfolds over time. But looking back on it, you know, when, when we first had this idea uh, of Sir Kensington's, we were in college at the time. And we were, it was our second semester of uh, senior year. And we realized that food was really changing for the better. So every aisle of the supermarket was evolving um, there was organic dairy, there was grass-fed beef. All of a sudden, people were replacing things like soft drinks or you know, uh, energy drinks with more natural options. Uh, but condiments hadn't evolved in 70 years. You picked up a bottle of the ketchup that you grew up with, and it was high fructose corn syrup, tomato concentrate. And so we really saw a white space, and we saw a business opportunity. And we didn't know at the beginning that would be any kind of big business opportunity. You know, we, we just started really as a hobby. Um, but from being a hobby and, and, and after going um, to work in sort of the corporate world for close to two years and doing some traveling, uh, my partner, Mark, um, you know, who's my co-founder, said, 
we've been working on this uh, nights and weekends. We've sort of been doing some research and I'm ready to take the leap and do this full time. And I always sort of thought of him as someone who is more risk averse than I was. <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, well, if you're doing it, then, hey, I mean, here's an opportunity to to build something, you know, with the values and with a sense of purpose um, to have an impact on culture, to work in food, which I love, uh, to do something creative and to do it with people that I really enjoy doing it with. And so I think my aha moment was kind of saying yes and then thinking about the ramifications of that later. <laughs> and were, you, were you surprised when he suggested that? Did you, had you envisioned the, the Sir Kensington as something you were going to do full-time eventually and just hadn't gotten to it yet? Or was it always going to be a, a part-time hobby? So when we, when we first thought of it, right, like better catch-up, it, it seems so small and so obscure. And the businesses that were growing around us, right, or the, the businesses that were, had been growing since we were young or at the time, you know, around 2008, 2010, were businesses in technology, right, that were in social media, that were tackling, you know, giant markets, maybe in renewable energy, uh, or they were finance, you know, uh, in financial institutions or, you know, big consulting businesses. These are the businesses that were on the radar. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so for us, it was almost absurd to think that like actually we could support a livelihood and have entrepreneurial interest in something, you know, that actually is you know anti-technology in a lot of ways, which is making natural food and and making condiments. And so it was a big surprise when we, we you know first of all realized more and more that actually there was a burgeoning business and a really quickly evolving market here, driven by a more and more. Um, informed, intelligent, curious, and demanding customer. Um, but, but also that it, it could be something that would you know, support our livelihoods and, and be a true avenue for, for development and growth. And why ketchup? How did you guys land on ketchup? Well, it was exactly you know, at the beginning, you know, as I mentioned, that there was this evolution that was happening in food. Mm -hmm. And uh, we live in such an interesting time right now for, for food and for business and for society and culture, all these things are changing uh, tremendously because of the way that information flows through our society thanks to the internet. Mm -hmm. And the, the food industrial complex, which is really a close bedfellow to the, the television industrial complex, these are breaking down. And the things that were driving growth and the things that were, were impacting culture in the second half of the 20th century are being dismantled and a lot of food is being undone. And so when we, when we saw that there was this evolution happening in food and there was this kind of inevitability, uh, we realized that, well, it's going to happen to condiments too, you know? And importantly, why, why condiments? Why are, they worth, why are they worth paying attention to? Condiments are ubiquitous. Everybody has a relationship with them. They're in, you know, pretty much like 98% of American homes uh, probably close to 100% if you count ketchup, mustard, and mayonnaise, which is you know the products that, that we make and, and market now. And if you can make a small change to something so ubiquitous, and you can do so with a message connected to it and a message on top of it, then you can really actually make a big change in culture and in food culture. And so while ketchup is condiments, you know, are seen as something that is, as we say, cast to the side dish. Yes, but they're always ever present mm -hmm. and they, they are still food. We say condiments are food too. And our mission as a company is to bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food. 
And that ordinary and overlooked part is actually a really important, important part of the story. It's an important part of the story because when you honor these things that are overlooked, you know, you, you lift them up too and you recognize them as food and you, you imbue with them the, the power of food, mm-hmm. um, the power to create intimacy, connection, to connect people to nature. The other important part about ordinary and overlooked is that that means that it's not a competitive space. So if we were to go into snacks or beverages or, you know, if you, were open a, if you open a restaurant in New York City, oh, the competition <laughs> is insane, yeah. right? There's so much money flowing into that space. The, um, the demand is not growing nearly as fast as the supply. And that, that makes prices stagnate or drop. And mm-hmm. that's what you're seeing in, in most commodity food markets. When you focus on the ordinary and overlooked, right, if you fish where no one else is fishing and you zig where other, everyone else is zagging, yeah, there's a risk there because you've got to prime the pump, right? And you've got to be the spark plug that gets people interested and educated in that space. However, if you can own that space, then you have a lot of, of power and you have a platform that is only you. And, and I think that, that we're, you know, we're still in the grand scheme of things a very young and very small company. And we, we always wanted to grow this company for the long term. And while in some circles we, we've been considered to break through, and of course, you know, we do have a business of some scale, but really in the grand scheme of things, we're still just getting started. And so I do think that we have the, the beginning of a burgeoning platform mm-hmm. of onlyness and, and, a, and a platform where, where we can be known um, and trusted, but we have a long way to go to really to, to complete that story. Well, your uh, your thoughts on ketchup. Um, I think we were talking earlier at lunch about uh, Malcolm Gladwell's potentially differing thoughts. Can you share us all our, your little anecdote about running into the guy well, as well as, um, yeah. And Malcolm Gladwell sort of famously wrote an essay for The New Yorker in the early 2000s about uh, the, the power that Heinz has mm-hmm. in the ketchup space and why they can never be dethroned and, and getting into this sort of deeper philosophy around uh, f- melding of flavors and the inability to pull out individual individual seasonings or something within the Heinz recipe, and that's something that you, I think, disagree with. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would go so far. I would go so far as to say that I that Malcolm Gladwell and I have differing opinions on ketchup. Um, but you know that article was written in two thousand four, yeah. right? So that's now. Uh, 14 years ago, yeah. mm-hmm. right? That's a mm-hmm. long time ago. You know, that's half a generation. And so he wrote this article for The New Yorker called The Ketchup Conundrum, and I highly recommend you go read it. Yeah. I'm actually a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. His podcast is incredible. Well, and this article in particular is, uh, is, is really a brilliant essay. No, it's absolutely a brilliant essay. But he posits that, that there can be only one ketchup, mm-hmm. right? Heinz, <laughs> and it's, it's the perfect ketchup because of this concept that he talks about of amplitude, mm-hmm. how it's in perfect balance. And ketchup is one of the, the foods that has to be in balance with all the five basic tastes, sweet, sour, savory, um, bitter, and salty. Mm-hmm. And if you, one of those is off or if you have one ingredient in, in too large proportion, then all of a sudden it gets rejected. And it's like, okay, just because amplitude and balance is important in food doesn't mean there can only be one recipe that really nails that. Culture does change, right? Culture is always changing. Food is always changing. And um, so we had read this article, and it was one of the things that kind of got us curious about the space. It was one of a number of different references that we draw we drew from. And this was now in 2008, and we had stayed up all night um, making 
our first batches of ketchup for our friends because we were going to throw this tasting party later that week. And we had slipped these invitations into people's mailboxes that said, Sir Kensington invites you to a ketchup tasting. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we stayed up late. We did all this work. We were basically figuring out how to cook for the first time ever. And I, I had this terrible toothache that I was neglecting. And so I was going to the pharmacy to get some um, you know, Tylenol for it. And I see this bob of curly hair bouncing <laughs> up and down on the side on the street. And someone's walking toward me. And I realize, oh my God, I think that's Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> this is like eleven at night. And he's with this this woman and I'm and so I run into him and I'm like, Hey, are you Malcolm Gladwell? And he's like, Yes, I am. And I was like, Oh, I love your books, man. <laughs> and um and then I followed up and, and wrote him an email, invited him to the party because I forgot to talk about anything. You know, I, for, I was completely kind of disheveled and I forgot to talk about any of the, the stuff that was actually so relevant for the time. Um, it turns out he couldn't make the party. And I said, you know, I had, I had burns on my arms and those were ketchup burns. Like, you got you to, I'm suffering for my art here. You got to come try this stuff. Uh, and I've run into him a couple of times, but I would love to have a chance to sit down and talk with Malcolm about kind of where his head is at after these 14 years. And, and in that email, you read, you read us the email over lunch. In the email, you described your ketchup as scoopable or spoonable ketchup. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. We originally called it Sir Kensington's Gourmet Scooping Ketchup. Scooping Ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> where, where did that uh, word come from and, and how did it get lost in the evolution of the, of the brand? Oh, wonderful question, Ethan. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we started, we realized that, and I think this is for any, for any entrepreneurs, this is, I think, both a probably a teaching moment and, you know, a point of, of caution in either direction. But we realized that without any reputation ourselves, um, without a large marketing budget or traditional marketing experience, we weren't going to be able to reach people the way that normal food companies reach people. We weren't going to television advertisements or anything like that. This was before Instagram. So we knew that we would have to stand out on the shelf and we would have to be something that made people do a double take and immediately when they look at it, they go, that's different and that's better. And I want to try that. Mm-hmm. Really pique the interest of people that are looking for something a little different. And the way we did that was we said, if we don't want to blend in, we've got to be dramatically different. So let's just do the complete opposite of the category norm. Let's do the complete opposite of Heinz. If they're going to be plastic, let's be glass, right? And speak the language of the high-end European preserve. If they're squeezing, then let's be scooping. <laughs> and if they represent Americana, you know, the 1950s roadside diner fast food, well, let's be English. And so we created this character of Sir Kensington um, to humanize the product, to bring the personality of integrity and charm to what we were doing, um, and to dramatically differentiate us from the ketchup that everyone knew. And so it was, it was scooping ketchup because we wanted to use the language of how this thing was served and presented to be one more factor to differentiate. What we learned is that it's, it's great to differentiate and it's great to make a statement. But at the end of the day, people want to squeeze ketchup, <laughs> right? So, you know, we were just like watching people at barbecues, like try and hold their beer and like grab a spoon. And we were, you know, restaurants, people were just like pouring the wide mouth jars and it was like really ugly. So we said, <laughs> you know, a, state, a statement is great, um, but ultimately who are we serving here? Who are we empathizing with here? Who, you know, who's ultimately going to grow this business? It's the customer. And so uh, we moved actually to, to squeezing for our ketchup and sales have, have grown, grown tremendously since we did that. I think that gets at a challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs face, which is you start the brand with a particular vision and 
aspects of that vision are invariably lost along the way as mm. you get feedback from customers. And, and for some people, that's really hard to adjust to. What's, what about that decision-making process for you was hard and what was easy and how did you and Mark and, and the rest of the team work through that? And, and other similar challenges where, where customers have given you feedback that didn't jive with what you imagined the brand to be. This is such a great question because, um, you know, we have this saying at Sir Kensington's that everything is open for improvement, right? People, process, products. It's, a, it's about a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset. And this is one of the most challenging things about the creative process. And one of the most challenging things about, you know, having a vision is that it is in part wrong. And you, you, it is. It was very hard for us, and I think it's it's hard for the average person unless you're very practiced at sort of doing research, finding objectivity, taking feedback, but not necessarily taking everyone's feedback, right? Because you got to pick the right feedback. Um, and you know th that was a that was a challenge for us because we were asking the question, well, we've got a product that that does have you know some sales, right? We have a product that does have customers. If we change it and take this feedback, will we alienate our core? Right? Will we move away from that core? You know, next week, Sir Kensington's will be in Walmart for the first time. Oh, congratulations. Ooh, okay. Thank you. And that represents a tremendous milestone for us. It represents the democratization and the availability and the accessibility of our products. And it represents the largest retailer in the world moving towards healthier, more progressive products to serve their customer. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's it can be challenging, right? There are a lot of stories around Walmart. There are, um, you know, a, a, there is potentially an understanding that when something uh, is mass distributed or is more available and accessible, it almost loses uh, some quality that it has of being special. But but for us, we wanted to make an impact on the way that America thinks about food. We want to make an impact on food culture, the way that people eat. And we want to have a communication platform that was truly national. Because if you're just focusing on that niche and you're just focusing on that core, right, of who you sold to last year, how can you ever have that, that big impact? And how can you ever um, really earn your place on people's pantries and on people's dinner table, which is, I think, for us, you know, where it really matters. And... So I think it was a, you know, in, in looking to take, in looking what feedback do you take, what feedback do you lose, you have to ask the question, what is my North Star? What is my end goal? What is a change that I'm trying to make, my mission? And then how do I compare this feedback to, um, how, do I, how do I consider this feedback and make trade-offs and make judgments that get me closer to that goal rather than further away from that goal? And so, and also, it takes intuition. It takes risk taking. It takes a lot, you know a lot of gut instinct, and it takes repetition too. Um, but I think that you know there is a huge value in having a vision, but there's an even greater value in being able to adjust that vision and know what about that vision is um, unalienable or unassailable, right? And then what about that is really just a means to an end. Um, let's step back for a minute and, and talk about your kind of career 
path overall. Um, right out of college, you went to you moved to Japan to work for uh, for Lehman Brothers. That's that right. right. Yeah, I was there. Like I arrived, and then a month and a half later, we went bankrupt. <laughs> Perfect time. Yeah, so I did a I did a tremendous amount for for shareholders in that month. <laughs> and then you uh, somehow decided to embark on a, a bicycle trip across the Middle East and Central Asia. Yeah, I uh, so after after that, I worked for a Japanese bank for a while, and um, you know that that was a, a wonderful growth experience, and I had the 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 joy of working with some tremendous people. Though ultimately, I felt like. I wasn't having an impact on culture in that work, right? Of the, especially you know being so far from America. Culture meaning meaning what? Meaning like the way that people live their lives on a daily basis. You know, yes, it'd be, it'd be great if people you know have more money in their pension funds and um, you know we perform for our clients. But at the same time, like I'm really interested in kind of leaving a cultural legacy. I mean, that's important to me as a as a creative and a, as an entrepreneur. And I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. Um, but I, after that, I after spending some time there, yeah, my, my friend Woody and I, we traveled across Asia on folding bicycles. Uh, on <laughs> How did you find the folding bicycles? We wrote a bunch of letters to folding bicycle companies and asked people to sponsor us. <laughs> nice. And Dahan, which was at the time the world's uh, largest and leading folding bicycle company um, based in, in Taiwan, they, they sponsored us with these bicycles. And we, we went to 23 different countries, um, over 100 cities. And we documented the entire process on asiawheeling.com. I was able to, that was really where my food education was, um, was on that trip because we were eating um, oftentimes completely unknown uh, foods to us uh, and different cuisines that really kind of gave my palate an amazing workout. And also as an entrepreneur, you, you learn to just be at home in the world and to be at home with all different types of people. And in, and Ethan, I'm sure you're nodding your head. I'm sure you've <laughs> experienced this tremendously. And Jenny, I get the sense that you travel mm -hmm. a lot too. And I think that, that travel grows your perspective on the human experience in a, in a really priceless way. Uh, what is your take on many other cultures uh, love-hate relationship with ketchup? Um, I think generally Americans love ketchup. But uh, it's uh, can be polarizing to others. Yeah, it can it can be polarizing both ways. Like I think that you know, and not, I don't want to generalize, but I think right if you like go to a French restaurant and ask for ketchup, it's like almost offensive. Mm -hmm. But then you go to some countries and they're putting ketchup on pizza, <laughs> right? So it's it's uh, ketchup is. I mean, you know, maybe maybe I have some expertise in ketchup, but I'm not like <laughs> I'm not like a ketchup like um, I have. I don't have really any beliefs on how ketchup should or shouldn't be used, right? I think it's totally up to whoever is using it. I, that's, that's, that's not the dogma that I'm interested in putting out there. Um, ketchup is amazing because it is the five basic tastes. Mm -hmm. And it's a sweet food that is designed to work with savory foods, which is, I think, a really interesting um, combination and one that makes it extremely versatile. Mm -hmm. It's also... Um, one of the few kind of carriers of umami in in Western cuisine. So yes, of course, you know red meat and and mushrooms and onions have umami, um, but there are a lot of you know foods that don't naturally carry umami, and and we crave that fifth taste, that savory taste. So the fact that ketchup can serve as this way of putting umami on something is is very powerful. So yeah, I would say you know I have no dogma. Use use your ketchup how you want to use your ketchup. What were some of the uh, this the most challenging dishes that you ate while you were traveling? Oh, wow. Challenging. Uh, so we were in, um, 
Chengdu once, mm. and we we were told, oh, you have to go to this restaurant and get the duck neck hot pot. So mm-hmm. we had these duck necks, and the, they were delicious. I mean, the I had no challenge with the duck necks. The challenge was that man, this was spicy. So <laughs> the Sichuan hot pot that we had, I mean, I must have washed it down with like three liters of beer. <laughs> I, it was it was so it was so hot. Um, also, I think challenging on the spicy scale. I love Sri Lankan food, and it's something that really hasn't permeated Western consciousness much mm-hmm. at all. But like the rice and curry and kotu, and we had this one kotu that like literally just burned my burned my tongue off. So there are some spicy foods there. Um, Russia can be challenging. Uh, it you know the, their idea of of, of us eating a salad in Russia is either putting dill on something, <laughs> or you know potato salad with mayonnaise. Yeah. Um, so getting fresh phytonutrients in Russia can be very challenging. Where so where did the trip take you? Where did you the twenty three countries? What were yeah we we started in Southeast Asia and uh, on Java in Indonesia and which is uh, the the birthplace of ketchup isn't it and and it's very oh you're gonna take the interview there great (laughs) well we can if you want yeah yeah yeah. since since we're in java anyway exactly so um ketchup was originally a fermented fish sauce and it originally didn't have any tomatoes in it and um you know there are debates specifically did it come from southern china did it come from indonesia i mean the truth is is there were a lot of you know seafaring traders and also the English and the Dutch that kind of picked it up we went to went to all of those places. Um, ketchup is a is a Chinese word from Fujian province, uh, and ketchup manis, which is a sweet sauce, you can still get that in in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, but it, it, so it was really this fermented fish sauce that was used on other foods to bring exactly that savory flavor and salty flavor. I'm not too sure if it had any sugar in it at the time, uh, but it was only after you know, coming to Europe and to America that tomatoes were um, introduced to it after the tomato was um, first discovered by Westerners in uh, Southern Mexico by Hernan Cortez. And that was brought into Spanish cooking, brought into Italian cooking. You know, a lot of people don't really know that, mm-hmm. it, you know, Italians like 600 years ago didn't have pasta sauce, right? right? Because no, don't believe today, me when yeah, they say exactly. this. Yeah, yep. like mm-hmm. they didn't, you know, and, and what's also, you know, then you also realize that actually the same story is true about the pepper, right? Yeah. Like, there were no, there was no spicy food in India. There was no spicy food in in China. There was no spicy food in Africa, and certainly not in Europe, until it was brought. the The pepper was brought from Latin America by the Portuguese. Yeah. Ethan, you would know. It was six hundred years ago, five hundred years ago. Yeah, something like that. I mean, yeah, people were using black pepper or malagueta peppers or various other uh, peppercorn varieties, but there was no chili pepper. Yeah, for sure. no capsaicin. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and now it's it's kind of amazing to to think about what cultures are known for being spicy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, we started in Southeast Asia. We went to India. Um, we went to the Middle East, um, to Syria, which was a really ama- amazing experience. Um, and it was so heartbreaking to see a year later the yeah. war erupt. Uh, we went to Central Asia, to Uzbekistan, to Kazakhstan, um, through Siberia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, um, into China again. I spent some time in Korea and Taiwan. So um, really, we went, we went to all sorts of places. And how did you get from a, a bike tour of Asia to, to doubling down on Sir Kensington's and, and doing this full time? Well, we had already started, as I mentioned, you know, when we were in college, uh, creating the products and shaping the brand, the beginnings of the community. And it was, you know, during that trip that, that Mark, my, um, my partner, co-founder, 
and our CEO decided uh, that he was going to do this full time. And, and I said, well, I'll, I'll do this too. And so I came directly there and I uh, spent a week, you know, in California where I'm from. And then I, you know, came directly to New York and we started, you know, selling ketchup and, and then mayonnaise and mustard ever since. Do you still have the bike that you, uh, you rode across? <laughs> it, it's so funny because we had two locks on this thing across all of Asia and uh, we, we took this bike everywhere. And, and, and actually a bike shop in Singapore said, we'll, we'll take your, the bike that you rode on and we'll give you a brand new version of the same bike, but we want to put this in our archives, which was such an honor. <laughs> then when I came to New York about a year later, it was locked, but it got stolen. So <laughs> I take, take this bike to, you know, you know, a hundred different cities in Asia and it ends up getting stolen on 14th street. Just goes to show like New York City, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Really. yeah. But uh, the original bike is still in Singapore. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in two minutes for more from Scott Norton from Sir Kensington's. Tina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. And we're back. This is Why Food. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And we're here with Scott Norton, the co-founder of Sir Kensington's, which is an incredible, uh, whimsical, delicious condiment company based here in New York. Um, we're going to do, we realized we forgot at the top of the, of the podcast to introduce ourselves. Uh, so we're going to do a quick intro. Uh, I'm Ethan Frisch. I'm the, the founder of Burlap and Barrel, a direct trade spice company based in Queens. And we work with spice farms all around the world. Uh, I'm Jenny Dorsey. I'm a chef and artist here in New York. Um, I came from a consulting background, went to go get my MBA, and uh, ended up as a chef. And now I'm doing things with food and tech. Um, so, Scott, you you talk about uh, living an examined life as a, a big part of your kind of philosophy behind Sir Kensington's. Would you yeah. tell us about that, what that means to you, and, and how the business embodies that? Yeah, um, it, it's a great question, and, and it's something that, you know, we we talk about with all of our new team members, and I think it's something that, you know, the concept of living an examined life goes to the root of what Sir Kensington's is all about. Um, it's really about asking why. And we, we live in a world that we often take for granted. You know, the food that we eat, the, the customs that we espouse, um, the norms that we have, you know, everything to the way that we structure our day. And I, and I think that the, the fundamental kind of entrepreneurial spirit 
is about noticing and asking questions and being curious about the world around you, realizing where you can create value and what problems that you can solve, and understanding what the change that you want to make in the world is. And asking those questions is, I think, part of what it means to live an examined life. Um, and so when you, let's take the product for instance, right? And I don't want this to make, to make it all about the product or make it too tangible, but just the idea that, you know, something like ketchup that we eat on a daily basis, you know, living an examined life is, you know, for us about, okay, well, it should be made from real food ingredients and, you know, it, it should, the first ingredient should be tomatoes and it should be honored the way that other foods are honored. Um, so and, and the way that those are processed, right, the way that those are harvested should be done in a way that is in line with your values. And so living an examined life is about asking kind of, um, how do I want to be intentional? How do I want to be mindful? And then what are the decisions, big and small, that support um, that that way of living and that way of making decisions? So, so I think that that's kind of from a product basis. And then... Uh, when it comes to communications, when it comes to building a team, um, you know, when it comes to motivating yourself, living an examined life is about asking, you know, what is the legacy that I want to leave? How do I think long term? And um, and what is the message I want to send through my work? And how are you able to communicate um, kind of these bigger themes through like the messaging on the bottle, the messaging in your marketing, um, and making sure that you are really capturing people on an, an emotional level versus saying, as we were speaking over lunch, oh, we have this organic thing or less sugar or that. Like being able to really allow them to connect with your brand in a much more um, ta- an intangible way. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it really starts with um, our mission, which is to bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food. And to really bring everything back to that in terms of the change that we're trying to make, asking, you know, every decision that we make, the filter that we run it through is, will this help us bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food? You know, with business goals as well. Um, but making sure that you have consistency in that messaging, repetition in that messaging, and always going back to that as sort of the, the fundamental reason for being. And also really starting with why there. And also... Not just doing it clinically and doing it logically, but mm-hmm. really importantly, doing it with a platform of storytelling and having a storytelling and a creative instinct because people think they're rational, but they're just really good at rationalizing. Mm-hmm. But people are, everyone is emotional mm-hmm. and everyone really makes decisions based on emotion. And so, one of the ways we do that is by humanizing the product through Sir Kensington and humanizing the company through Sir Kensington, this character. So, by kind of wrapping up what, what he's all about. Um, in the packaging and making sure that we're sort of reflecting the values of our community, of ourselves in this character, Sir Kensington, making sure that the uh, all the writing, all the communication, all the visuals that we do kind of fold into that same world and that platform of storytelling. Those stories are the vessels that you can that you can imbue that message into. I also thought you guys did a really lovely job um, telling the story through the Fries of New York exhibit. Oh, Can thanks. you t- uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So uh, Fries of New York was was something we did in 2014. And you can look it up to see what it looks like. But we were uh, looking for ways to to bring awareness to more people about what we did. 
and to really, again, like elevate these condiments, elevate ketchup. And one of the challenges we kept running into was that, you know, ketchup, mayonnaise, these things were, again, like they were sort of low priorities. They were the side dish. And so we said, well, what's ketchup closest friend that people know and that they love and that they already get excited about? And how do we tell the story of Sir Kensington's and condiments through this thing? And that thing was the French fry. So what we did was we said, let's let's honor 100 French fries from New York City restaurants by um, taking them, uh, you know, ask, requesting a donation uh, of the of a, a French fry from each restaurant. Just one French fry. Well, they would give us a whole order, but we would pick <laughs> the best fry among that order. And then covering it in a thin layer of resin, uh, immortalizing it behind a, a glass um, bell jar and creating the world's first French fry museum where uh, we had a history of the French fry and condiments on the wall. We had a map of all the French fries, where you can get them in New York. We opened it up to the public. We sampled our products. Um, we had some fries there for a couple of the nights. And so for three days, we had this um, open to the public and free of charge French fry exhibition in the exact same way that the Natural History Museum uh, or the Botanical Gardens or Sir Kensington, kind of the Victorian naturalist himself, mm-hmm. would have done an exhibit of butterflies or orchids. And... Um, and that was so much fun and people really responded positively to that because not only was it this immersive experience that uh, presented the products and kind of was able to educate people, but there was something inherently funny about it. Mm-hmm. There was something inherently quirky about it that you couldn't put your finger on why. And I think that perfectly captures this balance of integrity and charm that we talk about. Do you have a, a favorite New York City French fry? Oh man, that's a, you know... It's a controversial <laughs> No, no fa- well, favorite any, anything is just tough because it's about uh context sure but you know i have to say the waffle fries at quality meats are mm-hmm. excellent okay. that was one that i was turned on to mm-hmm. and then also the steak fries at katz's deli uh-huh. really i, I really like french fries i'm into that I'm yeah into that. i mean it's 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 kind of under the radar but man nothing like a uh, french fries at katz's deli um a reuben and or corned beef sandwich and then a uh, Brooklyn lager and then bring your own ketchup. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you said over lunch that you, well, I guess, I guess what I want to ask is um, that seems like a, a big risk to take for a, a startup, a small business on a tight budget to spend all that money and effort and time on something that, that f- feels sort of tangentially related to the product that you're, you're making and selling. So how, how did that decision come about? How did you and the team kind of discuss that and decide that, that that was the best use of your resources. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we we always kind of look to do bigger and better marketing communications and projects like that when, you know, when, when what we have kind of as a baseline isn't necessarily helping us break through to where we need to break through. So, of course, you can do all the, you know, when you talk about risk, it's also kind of a risk to just market your products in grocery stores the way that everyone else markets them. And like Mm -hmm. you can do that better, but like you can only do that better to some degree that you really need to create love and you need to create awareness and and you need to create community. And those are things that it's harder to do in a grocery store. And we certainly couldn't afford, you know, big media and TV and things like that. And so we actually, as we were growing, we got investment from a creative agency, marketing agency called Mother New York, 
and as part of it, they offered to dedicate the hours and the talent necessary to collaborate with us on a campaign. So we were actually able to only pay the hard costs of putting that together. And as part of the arrangement that we had with them, we got their talent. Uh, and so I would, you know, for other entrepreneurs out there, I would, I would ask, you know, how can you kind of partner with other people who are interested in seeing you be successful uh, in a way that allows you to give your gifts and allows the, them to give their gifts um, to, to create some, an opportunity like that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you have a compelling storytelling platform in the form of a brand, then agencies, partners will want to get excited about collaborating with you and having that in their portfolio. Yeah. I think one of the other things uh, entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs um, struggle with a lot is trying to find their target customer when they start yeah. um, and determining who that is from the get-go as well as how that changes as you start addressing a larger market. Um, how do, were you guys able to pick, like, pick this is who we want to get, this is the brand that you know, we think that they're going to uh, enjoy and how has that changed over time? Yeah, that's a that that is a really that's a really challenging question, and it's it is actually the I would say probably most fundamental question in um, in growing a business because in what we do in food and in consumer products, it's really all about that customer, their mindset. You're solving problems for them, and you're empathizing with them, um, and. It, you know, if you don't solve their problem, then you don't grow and you don't have a business. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think what's what's interesting is that you see a lot of people starting businesses that that are are basing the products around their own needs and their own values. And I think that's great. And so, I think the question is, how do you identify and find groups of people out there? How do you find the tribe that is just like you that would be equally interested in this thing? Um, and then again, take the feedback around that. Um, but you know, it's important to put your products in a context where those people already are. So think about where your consumer might be shopping, where your customer might be shopping, where, what influencers or thought leaders they might be paying attention to and really get your products guilty by association of being in those contact contacts. You know, it's marketing is really all about the kind of equivalent of the bestseller table at a bookstore um you know what back when bookstores exist there'd be a bestseller table which yeah. everyone would swing by and if you can get on that table um it doesn't matter if you were like actually a bestseller if you were sitting on that table mm-hmm. then you were going to move and so find the influencers find the thought leaders find the right context that is going to build that brand and also communicate with them listen to them and and really build an understanding of who your your customer base is by listening I was just going to say, like, this is one of my uh, biggest pet peeves about food startups and one that I'm sure I'm guilty of. But uh, when when entrepreneurs make a food product that's really just for themselves Mm -hmm. rather than thinking more broadly about who's in the world and all the different types of people and what different types of people like to eat, um, you know, like I like to eat brownies with uh, I don't know, corn in them. And so I'm going to make a line of corn brownies and that's, and that's the company. I, I think to your point earlier about traveling and, and opening yourself up and just engaging with different types of people that, that for me at least, and it sounds like for you also, those processes have been really helpful in, in kind of complicating the relationship that you have with, with a customer, a, a base of customer bases, right? Like with a, a pretty diverse range of customers. Mm-hmm. 
And where did this storytelling instinct of yours come from? Like, um, I think it's it's it seems very intuitive to you, but I don't think it's intuitive to everybody <laughs> on how to position their brand and also be able to find someone who can not only like you know whether it's a Sir Kensington's or an, another person, but be able to immortalize that in such a specific way. Mm. Well, I think I'm, I'm really lucky because my parents were st- both storytellers. Um, you know, they they were in entertainment, TV, and, and communication, so they worked together. My dad was a director and my mom was a producer. And so I always kind of grew up around that kind of structured commercial storytelling and uh, learned how to edit and shoot video, and I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. So I always, you know, really took a strong interest in, in storytelling, and I love, I love being, st- you know, having stories told to me. I love films and movies. and uh, But even if, I, if it wasn't for that, we realize that the greatest businesses are also the greatest storytellers. Um, and you look at companies like uh, Apple or like Tesla, and you realize that what they're doing and you know at their core is a form of storytelling that gets people deeply, um, you know, it gets people emotionally resonating with those those companies and those products and those brands. Speaking of families, um, you recently had a child. Yeah, I uh, do. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, can you tell us what it's been like being a new dad, um, juggling family as well as a still growing business? Yeah, I, I find it really challenging. You know, I uh, I, I love my, my son and, and my wife more than anything. And, you know, I really want to be fully devoted to my family. And I also want to be really fully devoted to my business. And that those you know those two things I have a challenge with an off switch for sure um, in in both directions and so you know I'm very much still working on intentionality around that and making sure that um, you know I'm fulfilling my commitments making sure that I'm present when I need to be present in both cases and and the hardest part of all is knowing where I don't need to be present mm-hmm. and where I can cut back and so I think that that ultimately will lead to a healthier balance and um, delegation, which will ultimately grow, you know, more people in our business with more responsibility. Um, but it's it's really it's really challenging for me, for sure. It, as much as I, I love my my son and my family. What's your son's favorite condiment? Oh, my son's favorite condiment. Well, he's he's definitely had the ketchup. Um, <laughs> he's he's just over a year old. Yeah, he's okay. 13 months. I mean, I don't know. I think we, we give him every, avocado with pretty much everything that he eats, <laughs> so I would call avocado his favorite condiment. Awesome. So we're going to transition into a, a more rapid-fire segment at the end of the episode. Jenny, you want to kick it off? Well, um, I think the natural first question is, what is your favorite condiment? Well, I love our spicy brown mustard a lot. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's got a great balance to it. It's sharp and sort of spicy in like a nice nasal way, but it also has the sweetness of Vermont maple syrup. Um, though I also have to say, you know, uh, Cholula makes an amazing hot sauce. Mm-hmm. So outside of what mm-hmm. we make out of our own, you know, auspices, I think Cholula is, is a winner for me. What's the weirdest thing you've ever put the mustard on? Weirdest thing I've ever put the mustard on. Um, poof. So much for rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Bro- broccolini, <laughs> maybe? I like roasting broccolini oh, and putting them weird. in the mustard. <laughs> right. So that, you know, maybe I'm not so weird. Um, hamburgers or hot dogs? Hamburgers, for sure. Mm, okay. Um, what, what did you eat for lunch as a kid in, at school? Um, 
Man, I think I was one of those kids that like threw my lunch away every day, which what? is bizarre. But um, I do remember my dad would make me these deviled ham sandwiches, which was like this weirdo canned meat. Um, the deviled ham was the meat. Yeah, that was the meat. What's oh, deviled? What ham? is that? I mean, I don't know. Google it. Like, I don't. <laughs> I don't even know to this day. But then when I grew up, like when I was in, I was in high school. My my mother's Armenian and I'm half Armenian, and so I would take like hummus and pita and all these other foods that like kids didn't really know about. And at first they were like, "Ooh, that stuff is gross." And then when they tried it, they were like, "Oh, I want to get some of that hummus." And now hummus is a multi-million yeah, a whole dollar. Food group. <laughs> yeah. um, what is uh, if you could be any superhero overnight? What would you be? Who would you be? Oh wow. Um, Superhero. I'm not really big into the whole superhero universe. If, how about a, a superpower? Yeah, yeah superpower. Super uh, uh, pr- time travel for sure. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Where would you travel to? What? T- when would you travel to? Every time I made a mistake, I'd go back 15 minutes and not make it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I mean, oh my god, ancient Rome, mm. right? Ancient Egypt. Like, check out the original caveman days. Mm. Um, man, there's going to be some amazing experiences, yeah. right? Like ancient Japan, ancient China. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, t- oh, the future, right? Like <laughs> check out the future. Like that would be so cool. Um, if you could master any skill overnight, what would it be? Listening. Listening how? <laughs> yeah. You know, being able to actively listen to people and notice and being able to communicate with full presence and help people around you feel heard, that is the ultimate graspable superpower. Because um, you just become so valuable and so helpful to other people, and you become so much more smarter when you shut up and listen. And so I would, I would love to master that skill of listening. How do you take your eggs? I take them in always. I really like them just like simple, uh, over easy. Nice. Um, One time I went to a restaurant and my friend ordered shirred eggs. What is that? That's what everyone looked at him and asked, even the the waiter. And the guy goes, oh, the, the chef will know what it means. So <laughs> there, <laughs> there are two chefs in this room and neither of us know what it means. Waiter comes back five minutes later goes, I'm sorry that the chef doesn't know what shirred <laughs> eggs are. And he goes, okay, then just scrambled. <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever figure it out? Is it a real thing? Or I was, was like, dude, what shirred eggs? He was like, well, it's like a soft scramble. And he like wouldn't really explain it. So I was like, all right. And I don't. I, I still don't know this day what shirred eggs are. are Maybe some, someone like, could tweet at us and tell us. Shirred eggs. There are some like shirt? funny egg scrambling styles where you do it in a pot over super low heat and you take it on the heat, on the heat uh, and off the yeah. heat and add butter and add cream and take it off the heat and add, I don't know. It's yeah. like a twenty minute process to to make like two scrambled eggs. Anyway, uh, sure, shirred eggs. We'll, yeah, we'll look it up. Um, restaurant pet peeve. Restaurant pet peeve. I don't like a ton of questions. I would say oh. two. You know, when they come and they're like, is it like they put the food down and then like 30 seconds later, they're like, how is everything? It's like, I don't know. You just like <laughs> gave me the food. Like it looks fine. Like, I, and then the other thing is like when you ask for a recommendation and they're like, everything's really good. Oh, yeah. And you're <laughs> like, dude, like, he- please help me. <laughs> right. Like, OK, I came to the restaurant hoping everything would be really good. What's the best? <laughs> Um, and uh, so what's next for Sir Kensington's? What's, uh, what's on your agenda? So really excitingly, we just announced that we are making ranch dressings. Cool. Oh, yes, I saw. Yeah. 
and uh, how so, hard was that to come up with? What was the R and D process like? What oh, um, well, it's uh, both the R and D and the concept was you know challenging. One because it's our first it's our first time doing any kind of salad dressing or outside of like the the strict definition of condiments, and so you know it was a big leap for us to say, hey, is dressing a condiment? Is it you know is is it truly ordinary and overlooked? And and what we realized was that ranch is um, you know, about 30% of all the salad dressing that Americans eat. You know, it's a giant... Really? Yeah, people love ranch. And, you know, what ranch was, was kind of what, you know, ketchup was like 10 years ago. And, again, dominated by a major brand. Um, and it was an opportunity that we had to, to look at what are the flavor profiles at play here? What are the ingredients? How do we, you know live and examine life when it comes to creating that recipe and how do we build something, you know, with the backbone and the flavor of ranch without necessarily the preservatives and different flavoring agents. And so it was, I mean, we have such a talented team, um, Laura, Catherine and, and Valerie on, on the team who really brought that to life are talented and, um, and visionary and so tenacious when it comes to getting it right. Uh, and so that, that's, that's what's next. And that's really exciting for us. And we're also looking for more uh, storytelling platforms that we can intertwine more deeply with our products. So not necessarily just a supermarket product and not necessarily just a marketing campaign, but I think we're starting to ask the question of, you know, I think the future is uh, for everything is about omnichannel. It's about experience and to neglect digital, to neglect a retail experience and, and think that you can just rely purely on retailers to bring your products to people and media organizations to, you know, bring your messages to people is, is I think not realistic. Mm -hmm. And so the question is more, how do we be inventive? How do we use integrity and charm and how do we bring what we do to life and to more people in creative ways? If you met a species of aliens tomorrow and you had to <laughs> offer up one of your condiments as like a sign of peace, which one would you offer up? Definitely our classic Fabinets. Yeah. Tell so us our, about Fabinets. So Fabinets is our eggless mayonnaise. It's eggless mayo that instead of using... So the way to make mayonnaise is you'd use eggs to emulsify oil and give it the perfect texture of, of mayonnaise. Now, a lot of there are a lot of ingredients that you can use as emulsifiers in place of egg, um, but they tend to be highly processed and they don't tend to taste very good. But we realized that you can actually, thanks to some amaz an amazing group of vegans that was doing a bunch of work around meringues, you can use the the water that you get in a can of chickpeas, mm -hmm. chickpea aquafaba. water, aquafaba, to emulsify oil. And we add kombu seaweed to that, both for flavor, um, for that savory flavor, and for texture. And uh, originally, we were sourcing this as a waste product from a, a hummus-making operation, um, now we, we've, you know, grown to, to larger sources, but I would offer that up because I think it, you know, shows some great culinary ingenuity. And I think there's an interesting just story to be told. And also like, I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to suppose that these aliens are not vegan. <laughs> um, well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. I feel like we can keep talking for another two hours, but, uh, unfortunately, um, well, it's an honor and, th and thank you so much for having an opportunity to share my experience and tell the Sir Kensington story. And uh, where can our listeners find you and, and find uh, your products? So find us at at Sir Kensington's on Instagram 
And you can find us, you can find on our website, we have a store locator. But if you go to any Whole Foods, you'll find our products. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks to Blind by the Red Crickets for our awesome theme music and David Tash, our, our kick-ass engineer. And if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, please email us at whyfood at heritageradio.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. History of mine. All the time. I don't know how to take time.